Thank you so much, worship team. Well, as we were uh, praying for the offering, I realized I didn't introduce myself earlier. Uh, I know we have a number of visitors here this morning, family and friends who are in town. And My name is Jason Carlson. I'm the senior pastor here at Lakes Free. So welcome. Thank you for joining us today. I'm uh, fighting a bit of a cold, an early uh, Christmas season cold here, and so my, my head's a bit in the fog this morning. But uh, but again, thanks for coming out. We're going to have a great Christmas season here at Lakes Free. I want to welcome uh, those of you who are watching online today. If you're not aware, we do uh, live stream our morning uh, worship uh, services here at Lakes Free. And uh, we have people all over the world that are, uh, are watching. And so uh, especially to you, uh, thanks for joining us. And I know we have a bunch of our Lakes Free missionaries watching us this morning. Uh, we hear from them regularly. And so uh, to you, our missionaries, I just want you to know your Lakes Free family loves you. We are praying for you, and we are asking that God blesses you richly uh, this Christmas season. So just know you've got a church family that uh, stands with you and supports you. In fact, let's give our missionaries a big round of applause just so they can hear, they can hear from, uh, from all of you here. There's no greater privilege, friends, that we have as God's people than to be a part of uh, advancing the good news of Christmas all around the world. And uh, some of our missionaries have been called to go to faraway lands. And so for us as a church to be behind them and supporting them, it's a great honor that we share. Well, this morning, as we continue our uh, Christmas series, The Songs of Christmas, we turn to Zechariah's song. And uh, Zechariah was the father of John the Baptist. Now, some of you dads here this morning will probably be able to relate to this. Uh, the happiest day of my life, I, and I kid you not, I, I remember this day as being the happiest day of my life. It was the day that my son Caleb was born. Uh, you know, lots of great things have happened in my life, but there was something incredibly special about the birth of my first child, my son Caleb. I remember, you know, my wife got pregnant and we were looking forward to, to Caleb's arrival. You know, that nine months, it just couldn't go fast enough. We, uh, we had had an ultrasound and we found out that we were having a boy and I was so excited, you know, looking forward to the arrival of my son. And, and that nine months went by and then the, the day came when, when Kim went into labor. And, uh, man, that was a tough day. She had a long labor with Caleb. It was like over 15 hours she was in labor. We took her into the hospital late at night, and she was there all night, into the next day, into the next evening, until finally, after all of that anxious waiting, finally my son was born. And I just remember being overcome with emotions and joy like I had never experienced before in my life. I remember going out to the waiting room where my mom and dad were, were waiting to hear the news. And, and I remember going and hugging my dad and just breaking down in, in, in tears, just tears flooding with, with happiness and joy uh, because my son had arrived. It, it was the greatest day of my life. I'll never forget it. And, and today we're going to look at a story of another father who was anxiously awaiting the arrival of his son. This father's name is Zechariah, and he was the father of one of God's prophets, John the Baptist, the, the one who would be the forerunner of the Messiah, who would prepare the way for the coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ. 
And the story of Zechariah and his anxious waiting for John is a very fascinating story. You see, Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth were, were elderly. They were advanced in years, the Gospel of Luke tells us. And they had never had children before. They, they thought that their, their chance for having kids was, was done, long gone. Well, Zechariah, he was, a, he was a priest in the temple of God in Jerusalem. And Zechariah one day had been chosen to go into the holy place and offer prayers on behalf of the people of Israel and to burn incense on behalf of Israel. And so Zechariah, on his day of service, goes into the temple, into the holy place. And as he's inside the temple, all of a sudden an angel of the Lord appears to him. And it's the angel Gabriel. And the angel Gabriel appears to Zechariah while all the people are out in the, the common area waiting for the priest Zechariah to come out and give his benediction. They're waiting, and Zechariah is taking a long time. Well, this angel's appeared to him. And the angel Gabriel tells Zechariah, Zechariah, you are going to have a son. And Zechariah's like, wow, this is amazing. And not only that, but your son is going to be a prophet of God. And now Zechariah is really thinking, this is awesome, because there had been no prophets in Israel for over 400 years. God had gone silent, and the people were waiting for a new word from the Lord. And the angel tells Zechariah, you're going to have a son, and he's going to be a prophet of God. Not only that, he is going to be the forerunner of the Messiah, the Savior who is coming. And Zechariah, you can imagine, is just thinking, this is too good to, to be true. The the angel tells him, Zechariah, you're going to name your son John because he will be the one who foreshadows the coming of the Messiah. Now, at this point, Zechariah says to the angel, this is unbelievable. Zechariah says to the angel, how do I know all of this is true? And in one of the funniest lines in the whole Bible, right? Read this in Luke chapter 1 sometime. One of the funniest lines in the Bible, the angel says, because I'm Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God. What more do you want? Right? I mean, I'm an angel from God telling you this. And the angel then tells Zechariah, because of your disbelief, because of your doubt and lack of faith, God is going to give you a sign. You will be made mute until your child is born. So for nine months, Zechariah has to wait. Over nine months. Without being able to speak, without being able to tell anybody what the angel had reported to him. All the people know is that now Zechariah has been unable to speak. And so nine months goes by. Elizabeth gives birth miraculously to this baby boy. And the friends and family come to their home, and they all want to see this new baby. And they're expecting that Elizabeth and Zechariah are going to name the baby after the father, which was the custom in, the, uh, in Israel in those days. They're all thinking this is going to be Zechariah Jr., And Elizabeth says, no, no, we're going to name him John because that's what the angel had told us his name was to be. And then the family says, well, no, no, I can't be John. And so they look to Zechariah. Zechariah, what are you going to name your son? And Zechariah writes on a tablet, his name is John. And as soon as he writes those words, God restores his speech. His voice comes back. And Zechariah, the very first thing he does when his voice returns is to sing a song of praise and blessing to God. And that's what we have here today in our passage in Luke chapter 1. 
verses 67 through 79, we see Zechariah's blessing. The benediction that he was never able to give when he came out of his service in the temple, he gives now at the birth of his son, John. And it's a great song of praise that we're going to see this morning. I want to read this passage for us today, and and then I want to highlight four really powerful truths that we see here in Zechariah's song. If you want, you can follow along as I read. It's on the screen, or if you have your Bibles, we're in Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 67. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Where where does the name Benedictus come from? The, The name of this song traditionally has been called the Benedictus. In Latin, the first word of this song, blessed be, is the word Benedictus. That's where that term comes from. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. This is Zechariah's song, the Benedictus, his song of blessing and praise to the Lord. I I, want to highlight four very neat truths that we see here in Zechariah's song, truths that I believe will inspire us as we enter into the the Christmas week together. The the first thing I want to highlight for us here in this powerful song, in Zechariah's song number one, we find the promise of salvation. The promise of salvation. Right here in verses 68 through 70, right at the outset of his song, I, I want to make two observations about these verses and what we see here. The first observation I want to highlight for us here is that Zechariah, if you notice, speaks of our salvation in the past tense. Friends, do you notice that? He speaks of our salvation in the past tense as if it's already been accomplished. It's done. He says here in verse 69, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us. He has visited us. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us. He has visited us. He has raised up a horn of salvation. Now, wait a minute here. Jesus hadn't been born yet. John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Messiah, had been born, but Jesus hadn't been born yet. So what is Zechariah doing talking about our salvation in the past tense? He has visited us. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us. Friends, this is an interesting, interesting point here. See, 
The reason Zechariah speaks in the prophetic past tense here is because under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God was declaring to his people through the prophet Zechariah that the promise of salvation was as good as done. It was good as done. It was a guarantee from God. Not only was it a promise, but it was something that God had ordained before the very foundation of the world. God had made a plan for our salvation in Jesus Christ. Take a look at what the Apostle Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1, 18 through 20. Peter, in 1 Peter 1, 18 through 20, says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Look at friends. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last time for the sake of you. Friends, what is this verse telling us? This verse is telling us that God's plan of salvation, his plan to send his son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross as the substitute for our sins, that plan was put in place, stamped, sealed, confirmed before the very foundation of the world. How can Zechariah speak of these things in the past tense? Because in God's eternal sovereign view of history, It was past tense. God, before the foundation of the world, had declared it to be true. And this isn't just Peter's word. This is the word that we see throughout Scripture. 1 Corinthians 2, 7. God decreed this plan of salvation before the ages. 2 Timothy 1, 8 and 9. This plan of salvation, which he gave us in Christ Jesus, when? Before the ages began. You you look at... Titus 1, 1 and 2, promised before the ages began. And again, we could keep sharing more and more references along these lines. Why does Zechariah say he has visited us? He has raised up a horn of salvation for us. Why? Because he had in his eternal sovereign plans. These things were as good as done. Now, friends, I want you to think about what this truth means for you this Christmas. Before the foundation of the world, before the beginning of the universe, even before that, God had a plan for you. God had a gift in mind for you at Christmas before the ages began. Wow. Friends, I I didn't even start working on my Christmas presents until last week. And the Bible tells us that before the foundation of the world, God had you in mind and a plan of salvation to rescue you and save you from your sins. Why? Because he loves you. Friends, are you doubting whether you're of any worth or value this Christmas season? Don't ever doubt that, friends. Because before the ages began, God loved you. John 3.16 tells us God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. When did he do that? Before the very foundation of the world. Zechariah says he has visited us. He has raised up a horn of salvation. Observation number two here from these opening verses. 
Not only does Zechariah speak of our salvation in the past tense, but he also tells us that our Messiah is mighty to save. In verse 69, he says that God has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. God had promised David long ago that through his line, through King David's ancestry, the Messiah of Israel would come. God told David that your throne is going to last forever. The, the Davidic line in your reign will never end. Why? Because the king, the Messiah, would come from David's ancestry. And now Zechariah tells us that from David's line, a horn of salvation has been raised up. Now, friends, have you ever wondered why God speaks of the Messiah as a horn? I mean, all throughout the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, we have references to the Messiah as the horn, the horn of salvation. I I remember as a kid growing up thinking, this this is a weird description of the Messiah, a horn. And and I would get get this image of like a trumpet, you know, and, and like... I mean, friends, I was at a, at a junior high band concert last week, and let me tell you, like, a horn doesn't inspire a whole lot of confidence. You know what I'm saying? Like, squawking and squeaking and honking. Like, like that's our Messiah? But, friends, you need to understand, God is not talking about our Messiah as a horn, like a musical instrument. He's talking about our Messiah as a horn, like a weapon, an animal's horn a battering ram, something used to smash and defeat your enemies, like a ram's horn or an ox's horn or a bull's horn. That is the kind of horn of salvation God has raised up, a powerful horn, a horn that is mighty to save, a horn that has smashed our enemy, the devil, and defeated him once and for all. That's why Zechariah speaks of Jesus as the horn of our salvation. Our horn is mighty to save. The Apostle Paul in Romans 1.16 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Why? Because it is the power of God unto salvation. Friends, this horn is powerful. It's powerful to accomplish our salvation. The author of Hebrews tells us not only is the horn powerful, but the horn Jesus is able to save to the uttermost. This isn't a partial salvation. This isn't like, I hope the horn can do something for me. Maybe the horns are going to be effective to save me. No, the salvation that our horn of salvation brings us saves us to the uttermost, friends. Please understand this this morning. This is why we refer to the promise of Christmas as the gospel or the good news. Why is it good news? Friends, it's good news because it doesn't matter today if you are a murderer, adulterer, pornographer, fornicator, liar, burglar, cheater, hater, swindler, or any other er. Jesus is mighty to save. He is the horn of salvation. He has crushed our enemy, the devil. And he's liberated us from our bondage to sin. And he saves to the uttermost, no matter who you are or what you've done. Friends, it's no wonder Zechariah begins his song with the words, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, because he is mighty to save. Second observation I want to make from this great song here of Zechariah. Secondly, in Zechariah's song, we find the vision of a holy nation. 
Now, while Zechariah speaks of the promise of our salvation as already accomplished, as he continues his song of praise, he next looks out into the eschatological future. What does that mean? To the end times. He looks out to a vision of the end times when God is going to bring final and complete fulfillment to all of his promises to Abraham and his people. Take a look at what Zechariah prophesies in verses 71 through 75. He says that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Now, friends, understand this morning, Zechariah never saw the total fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham. He never saw the total fulfillment of God's promises to his people. What what were these promises? What What was the oath that God swore to Abraham? Well, friends, it's found in the book of Genesis. That oath included three things, a people, a parcel, and a provision. That was the promise God made to Abraham. You are going to be the father of a great nation. And not only that, but I'm going to give your people as an eternal inheritance a land, the promised land. It's going to be a land of blessing. And I'm going to give you not only a people and a parcel of land, but a provision for the salvation of the world. The Savior is going to come through your ancestors, Abraham. The Old Testament prophets go on to elaborate on these promises that God began through the, through the line of Abraham. The prophets tell us that one day the Messiah would come and he is going to reign over the whole world from Jerusalem. And it's going to be a time of righteousness and peace where all the nations of the world will come and bow before the throne of Jesus Christ. Now, friends, Zechariah only saw the partial fulfillment of God's oath to Abraham. We've only seen the partial fulfillment of God's oath to Abraham. But one of the consistent promises found throughout the Bible is that one day God's oath is going to be realized in totality. One day the Lord will return. There will be a day when God's people will serve and worship him without fear, free from the threat of all of our enemies. We'll worship God in true holiness and righteousness. And on that day, friends, the Lord is going to reign from his throne in Jerusalem on Mount Zion. And what a day that's going to be. Friends, this is the hope that Zechariah points us to here in verses 71 through 75. It's an eschatological vision of the day when we will serve God free from the threat of all of our enemies. Now, friends, for us as Christians here in America, I think sometimes we don't fully appreciate the power behind this eschatological vision of the Lord's reign over this world. You see, we live in a very privileged situation here where we can come and worship the Lord free of threat on Sunday mornings. We can gather in our homes for Bible studies without fear of the police coming in and knocking down our doors. But friends, for many Christians in the world, they hold on to the hope of this eschatological vision of Jesus' reign over the earth. 
In fact, just this past week, I got an email from some missionary friends of mine who are serving in the jungles of Burma and Thailand, working with a group of people called the Karen. The Karen people are a minority people in Burma. And for the last 50 years, they have been systematically oppressed and persecuted by the Burmese government because they are a Christian people. And these Karen Christians have been systematically wiped out in a genocide. Hundreds of thousands of them have been forced to flee to Thailand where they live in refugee camps. Hundreds of thousands more have been killed because they desire to worship Jesus and not follow the traditional Buddhist religion of the Burmese government. And friends, do you want to know what my missionary friends told me their hope is this Christmas? What they're longing for this Christmas? Their hope is found in the promise of Zechariah's song. That one day we will worship the Lord free from the threat of our enemies. That one day we will be able to gather and worship the Lord in holiness and righteousness without having to set up watch posts out in the jungle to see if the army is coming for us today. Friends, Christians all over the world long for that day when Jesus will rule and reign. We don't have those same fears here in America. But this is the hope that we look forward to, the day when Christ will return and make all things new. You know, we might not fear the police marching in this morning to arrest us or take us away. But I know all of us here this morning are probably sick and tired of the fractured political state of our country today. I think all of us today would agree we look at the moral and spiritual anarchy that our nation seems to be ever increasingly descending into, and our hearts just ache. We see the despair in our nation, people struggling with depression and alcoholism and drug addiction. And friends, all of these realities should make us long ever more for the second coming of our Messiah, for that day when Christ will return and make all things new. He'll set everything right. And the nations of the world, the prophet Micah says, will stream into Jerusalem to come and learn from the King of kings and Lord of lords. And they'll beat their swords into plowshares. And they won't train for war anymore, Micah tells us. But instead, they'll worship the Lord in holiness and righteousness. That's the day that we look forward to, friends. Thirdly, in Zechariah's song this morning, we find the God-fearing parent's obligation. Now, friends, this is an interesting little curveball I want to throw at you here from this passage. Here in verses 76 through 77, Zechariah now speaks a prophetic word to his son, the baby who would come to be known as John the Baptist. T take a look at what Zechariah says here in these two verses. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Now, friends, I want us to reflect on something that I find fascinating here. I, I mean, just consider what we've got here in Zechariah's Benedictus. First of all, an angel appears to Zechariah and tells him that he's going to have a son. And now a miraculous baby has been born to his elderly wife, Elizabeth, and this new baby is going to be the first prophet of God to Israel in over 400 years. 
And yet, Zechariah dedicates only two verses in this whole song to John. I mean, friends, I find that amazing. I mean, when my son was born, I was calling everybody I knew. I couldn't stop talking about him. I was so excited. So what's going on here? I I mean, was Zechariah even excited about the birth of his son? I mean, two verses out of this whole thing dedicated to John? Friends, Zechariah was absolutely excited about his son. But you see, Zechariah understood that John was just a servant while Jesus was the king. Friends, what a model for us today as parents. Right from the outset of John's life, Zechariah was teaching John that Jesus is number one. How different this is from what we see today is the dominant parenting ideology in our world. The dominant parenting ideology in our world for the last 40 years is something called child-centered parenting. I found an article, in fact, you can look this up, there's thousands of articles about this online. Rick McDaniel, for example, writing for Fox News just recently, he, he, he talked about the child-centered family and how it's hurting our children. He says the child-centered home surfaced in the early 1980s. Boomer parents decided that their kids were going to get all the stuff they didn't. And this focus hasn't stopped since. In fact, it's increased. Moms and dads center their home around their children, especially in their academics and athletics. Kids grow up overprotected, overindulged, and the center of their parents' world. The child-centered family gives children way too much and requires way too little. The result is a prolonged adolescence and delayed maturation. Child-centered parenting. How different from what we see here in Zechariah's approach. What I would call Christ-centered parenting. From the very beginning of John's birth, Zechariah is making clear that John is not the point. Jesus is the point. It's not all about us. It's all about him. And Zechariah made that clear to his son John, even in his song of praise when John was born. Two out of 12 verses. You get two, John. Jesus gets 10. Why? Because you're a servant and Jesus is the king. What was the result of Zechariah's Christ-centered parenting approach? Well, 30 years later, John is out doing what he was called to do as the forerunner of the Messiah. John was gathering disciples, preparing them for the coming of the Lord. And all of a sudden, Jesus comes along, and Jesus begins to publicly minister as the Messiah. And some of John's disciples come to John, and they're concerned because now John's followers are starting to leave him to follow Jesus. And what does John say? John says, he must increase, but I must decrease. Friends, could there be any better slogan that we'd wish for our kids to embrace? He must increase and I must decrease. How do we get our kids to that place, friends? We get them to that place by teaching them that Christ comes first. And we do that by modeling that in our own lives, through our priorities, how we use our time, how we use our money, what we invest in as a family, 
All of those things matter in helping our kids understand that the world doesn't revolve around them. It revolves around Jesus. And parents, they don't need you leading them to believe that they're number one. They need you to model faithfulness and devotion to the one who truly is, Jesus Christ. See, friends, Zechariah had it right here. Love your kids. Cherish your kids. But never let them forget that we are just servants and Jesus is the king. I'll tell you, there's no better gift you could give your kids than this fundamental perspective on life. Fourthly, this morning, we find in Zechariah's song the fruit of the sun's illumination. I told you last week how my family and I just three weeks ago were over in Maui, Hawaii. Amazing time, great time. I was teaching for youth with a mission. Uh, had a great week there. But it's very interesting for those of you who have ever been to Hawaii or if you ever go there, uh, there's a five-hour time difference. And it creates a really interesting phenomenon the first couple days you're there because you wake up very early before the sunrise your first few days in Hawaii. See, you'll wake up around 4 o'clock in the morning and you won't be able to sleep. And you're thinking, why can't I sleep? Well, your body thinks it's 10 a.m. or 11 a.m. And so you just get out of bed and you decide, okay, well, what are we going to do? So our first day, we woke up at like 5 a.m. It's dark outside. We decided to go out our hotel and we start walking down the sidewalk. And it was really interesting because it was dark outside, but we could hear the wind blowing through the palm trees. We couldn't see them but we could hear him blowing in the breeze. We, we could hear the waves lapping up along the shoreline of the ocean, but we couldn't see them. We could just dimly make out their outline out of the moonlight. We, we could hear the birds chirping in the trees, but, but they weren't visible. And after an hour of walking down the beach, all of a sudden the sun began to rise. And the sun came up, and pretty soon the sun illuminated this beautiful vision all around us of paradise, palm trees, tropical birds, waves lapping the shoreline. Friends, why is Christmas so special? Why does the whole world annually look forward to this time of year? Why do even non-Christians so enthusiastically embrace the Christmas season? Friends, I believe it's because Christmas is a declaration that the sun has risen. See, even for those who don't realize it, even for those who don't know Jesus as their Messiah, we all long for the sunrise. We, we all know, like my family that first morning in Maui, that there's got to be something more out there, something more to this life. And, and I believe the reason Christmas is so enthusiastically embraced by our world is because at its heart, Christmas is the declaration that the sun has risen. There is more to this life. It's not all vanity like we saw this fall in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's not ultimately meaningless. And here in Zechariah's song, the Holy Spirit highlights for us the warmth, the illumination, the life that is found in the promise of the sunrise. Look again at verses 78 and 79. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Friend, Zechariah tells us that when the sun rose on that first Christmas morning, 
Jesus, our Messiah, brought light into the world. What kind of light did Jesus bring? Zechariah tells us he brought the light of hope to those who sit in darkness. Freedom from our sin. Liberation from all our guilt and shame. Friends, it's found in Jesus. What kind of light did Jesus bring? He brought the light of courage when in the shadow of death. Over my 20 years of ministry, I've visited hundreds of Christians on their hospice beds as they're waiting to go home to the Lord. And friends, I can guarantee you, I have never once met a Christian who feared death. Not once. Why? Because for the person who knows Jesus Christ and has the Holy Spirit living within them, that seal, that deposit guaranteeing our eternal inheritance, we know a resurrection hope. We know the hope of everlasting life. What kind of light did Jesus bring that first Christmas? Zechariah says he brought the light of direction to guide our feet into the way of peace. Jesus said in John 10, 10, I've come that you might have life and life to the full. Friends, do you know life to the full? Do you have peace in life today? Unless you're walking with Jesus, you're not going to know that peace. Because that peace only comes when you know the fullness of life found in walking with Jesus Christ. Friends, I'm going to tell you something as we enter into the Christmas week. Don't ever, don't ever neglect, don't ever mistake how much difference the sunrise makes. It changes everything. And I want to encourage us this Christmas season to think about how thankful we need to be that the sun has risen. The privilege that we have of walking in the light of the sun. Some of you this morning might be here and you're thinking, I, I don't know if I'm, I'm walking in the sunlight today. Friends, you can. You can make Jesus your Messiah this Christmas season. You can put your hope and trust in him and experience the light of Christmas for yourself. Light for those who sit in darkness. Courage for those in the shadow of death. Direction to know the way of peace. It's all found in Jesus. Friends, I was walking into church this morning, and I was thinking, man, this is great, this 40-degree weather. But then it kind of struck me. I started thinking to myself, you know what? we got a long time here in the land of the frozen chosen before any of us are going to start working on our tans again. But then I started thinking about my message this morning and the reality that when we walk with Jesus Christ, every day can be lived in the light of the sun. See, friends, that's the promise of Christmas. That's the joy that we celebrate Christmas morning. The sun has risen. Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this powerful song of praise from Zechariah. And I pray, God, that the truths of this message would illuminate our hearts this morning with the true joy of Christmas. God, as we look ahead here to the next couple days, Christmas Eve and then Christmas morning, I pray that this time of year would be more than just good food and songs and presents, but that ultimately, Lord, the sunrise that took place at Christmas would shine a bright glow into all of our lives as we remember who you are and what you've done for us in the gift of Jesus Christ. 
Lord, if there's anybody this morning who's here who hasn't received that gift of light and life through Jesus Christ, I pray that even right now, in the quiet of their own hearts, they might just call out to you, acknowledge their need for you, and say, Jesus, I want to walk in your sunlight. I want to know the joy of Christmas. I want to know the freedom from sin and the promise of new life that you purchased for me that Christmas day. And then when you went to the cross and shed your blood and rose from the dead so that I could have the hope of new life. God, I pray, Lord, if there's anybody here who's never received the gift of the gospel, that they might do so this Christmas. We thank you, Lord. Let our hearts rejoice because of who you are and all you've done for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.